Good evening. This evening, uh, our text will be Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30. And as Jason said earlier, we begin a new series on the order of salvation. And Jason talks about how we'll talk about each of these aspects of that order of salvation. Besides me, I won't get to talk about each order. Uh, I have the task that Jason gave me of saying, you get to talk about what it is without talking about what it is. <laughs> and so that is my great joy that I have with you all today as I get to talk about what is the order of salvation, but I want to make sure that I don't deal with every aspect today. Um, as the week's coming along, uh, you will hear from great men. Give the word on each aspect of this order of salvation. Um, and in all of this, one thing that I am excited for this series is that it is going to be a theologically heavy series. Um, but I want to encourage you all that in the midst of this, there's dangers that can arise that we come to a theologically heavy series with merely the goal of gaining knowledge and not wanting it to really affect our hearts or thinking that theologically dense and theologically heavy topics does not affect our hearts, does not uh, lead us to worship God deeper. But I believe this, that the more we study, the more we know, the deeper we go, that should naturally lead us to an even deeper worship and a deeper awe of our God. And that is the great joy of studying theology. That is the great joy of studying things that are beyond our comprehension at times, to challenge your mind in all of this. Because I believe at the same time, it's going to challenge your heart as well too. And that is our great joy that we have to be reminded that the mind is not disengaged from the heart. That knowledge that comes here is not disengaged from what it does to here as well too. That what goes from the mind goes to the heart and leads you to live in such a way. That is always the goal and that's the goal of the men who will be coming up here each Sunday evening, each Sunday morning, but especially in this series of the Ordo Salutis to challenge you both in your minds in your hearts, and in your life with the Word of God. Let me pray, and then we'll read the text. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for this evening. We thank you that we have this opportunity and this time to come and to gather, Lord, to hear your words, not mine. And Lord, we pray, Lord, because we need you this evening. We need you to open our eyes, to open our hearts, to open our minds, to the truth that you have before us. Lord, may we be dependent upon you to understand your words this evening. We lift this time up to you. May it be all for your glory in your name alone. Amen. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That is reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Sometimes we can get the question that's asked to us are you saved? Are you saved? Many Christians struggle with this question when asked if they're going to be going to heaven, if they're saved, if they are in Christ. 
They answer with such answers as, I hope so, I think so, maybe, let's see, at the end of the day. Burke Parson, he talks about this response to this, and, and maybe one, it's one in which you really aren't saved. But secondly, maybe it's one in which we think that that's the humble answer to give. Because I'm not coming right out and saying, yes, I am saved. But it's saying, ah, we'll see what happens. We think it's one of humility that we step back and don't say, I hope, and saying, instead of saying, yes, I am, we say, I hope so. But there may be some of you here this evening, yourself are struggling with the assurance of your salvation, and your response is the same. I pray that this sermon would speak to you tonight, that the words of God would give you clarity as we begin this series on the order of salvation, coming to understand what is it. And I have three points for us tonight. Redemption planned in eternity, redemption accomplished and applied, and redemption's ultimate purpose for us. And so let's move into our first point. And I have to deal with verse 28 quickly for us, just to kind of introduce that because it's important for us even as we come to this text. In verse 28 it says, And we know that for those who, God, who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. It's a passage that we're familiar with. It's a passage that we come to in times of the valleys, in times in which we are at our depths. And oftentimes we end it there that, that God works all things for, for good. We end there, but it continues about those who are called according to his purpose. It's the reminder that the promise is for the people of God. It's not this general promise given to everybody, but it's for the people of God. But it's there at that end where it says that this promise uh, is, 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 is for those who are called according to his purpose. And that's an important part about the purposes of God in this, the purpose of God in calling the people of God. Because verse 29 and 30 provides the explanation for what that purpose is and how that purpose is to come to completion. And it is in this that we will explore the question of what is the order of salvation? And so in the first point that we are going to be dealing with a redemption planned in eternity, I am going to take us back before there was anything taking us back when it was just a triune God before creation itself. And yes, this takes us a step back from dealing directly with the ordal salutus here in the way that it is often dealt with. But I believe that it helps us when we dive into the order of salvation, that second point, to give us a picture, it complements, it provides colors to it as well too as we deal directly that second point. Because Romans 8.29 mentions foreknowledge, and predestination. It's in this first point that I want us to deal with these two terms, to understand what these two terms mean and the implication for how we are to understand the ordal today. And so when it comes to foreknowledge, that first term, the Reformed and the Unreformed Arminian camp has two vastly different understandings of this term of foreknowledge. It can be translated as to know beforehand. And so it comes to the question of who does God choose and how does God choose and what does he see in us that he chose us in him. And it has purpose for us as we are to come to understand this term. 
Because a non-reformed view, a Arminian view would go on to say that, that, that God looked down this quarter of time and the God who sees everything, the God who knows everything, and we as Reformed folks say amen to that. But where we differ on this is when, is when they say that he watches and he sees you and your actions and decides based upon that. He goes, oh, Matthew, this Matthew started out rough, foul-mouthed kid as he was as a teen. But when he turned 18 and when he heard the gospel message by that man who came to me in faith, he also put his faith in me. And Matthew, this Matthew, as I see through this quarter of time, he has remained upright, he persevered. And so, based upon his faith that I see down this quarter of time, I've chosen him to be my child. And now Matthew is one of mine. In this conception of salvation that begins, in this conception of foreknowledge, begins, uh, it begins with man because God saw faith in the man first. So what we say is that God's election, God's choosing his predestination is based upon man's response. And the reason why I bring that up is that this will have implications for how we see the order of salvation. Is it that you have faith and God chose you? Or is it something a different order? Is, is, it, is it what God foresaw in that? And the issue with this understanding of foreknowledge is that this is not the concept that we have in Scripture when it speaks of foreknowledge. It's not this looking down this quarter of time and based upon your action, God chooses you. Lincoln Duncan, he tells us that here it means that God set, here it means God setting his love on his children before the foundation of the world. It means that God has foreloved you. God has foreloved you before anything. God has placed his love upon you before anything. Before you were born, before there was even your ancestry, in, in eternity's past when there was nothing, when it was just the triune God, he says, I have placed my stamp on you to love you, to set you apart. We see this language used in Jeremiah 1, this language of knowing. It's not just this, I know about you, or I know things of you. In Jeremiah 1, the Hebrew uses the word yada, being used of knowing, where God tells Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. This language is also of knowing one spouse that is used in the scriptures. And it's not that Adam knew about his wife or that these husbands know things about their wives. But it speaks of this deep, intimate relation. And oftentimes it speaks of a sexual relation when he knows his wife. There's this deep love that he has for her. And so the scripture, when it says that a husband went and knew his wife, the scripture is not being prude in its language, but the scripture is speaking of an intimate relationship that goes even deeper than just the physical aspect of making love. It's speaking of a deep love, a deep care for one. So I am no way in all this saying that when God says that he foreknown us, that I am applying sexual knowing of God. 
but I am suggesting that it is a deep, intimate knowing in which God has already chosen to love you. He has already set you apart for his love. He has before anything picked you. And there's nothing that you have done that has motivated God's love for you. There's nothing that he saw into the future that made him choose to place his love upon you. It is the fact that by his own wisdom, by his own counsel, he says, I am going to love you. It's mysterious. I don't know why. But he chose it. He chose to love you. And if God chosen to love you, foreknown you, to forelove you before there is anything in this world, before there was you, before you have even acted, means he also predestined you before the foundation of the world. To predestine means that he has a particular destiny for his people. And that is that we see in Romans 8, 29, that we would be conformed to the image of his son. That is the purpose. That is the destiny for God's people. Why he has chosen to love you. Why he has predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. Destiny, the purpose is that we will be like Christ, that we will love what he loves, hate what he hates, be a people that are holy. Your destiny as a child of God before the foundation of the world stands upon this reality that he has chosen you to glorify you. What we see in both foreknowledge and in predestination is a fact that none of this begins with us. None of this begins with man. We see one who acts in all of this, and it's our triune God acting before there was anything, acting before the fall, acting before there was creation. He loved you before anything. He predestined you before anything. And many of you today here in the pews, you may be struggling with finding this assurance of God's love. Feel as though God's love for me must ebb and flow, that it's high one day and low one day. And so you are in this constant struggle, living your life, trying to earn the love of the Father, thinking that the Father's love for you is like the fickle world's understanding of love. But I've got to do something to earn it. I've got to do something to raise that love up. I've got to do something. And so you walk on eggshells at all times, not wanting to disappoint. You walk on eggshells wondering if God still loves me today. Ferguson, when he preached at my seminary during the preaching conference, he said this, that God doesn't love you because the Son died for you. But the Son died because the Father loves you. You guys... God did not start loving you when Christ died for you. He's loved you even before Christ died for you. That's a huge difference when we come to understand God's love from eternity. What this means for you, and what this means for you who are anxious at all times about God's love for you, unsure if he cares for you, unsure if he's here for you, is that God cannot love you more than he did in eternity, and he cannot love you less than he did in eternity when he chose to place his love upon you. God's love is constant for his people. God's love is sure for his people. It's not going to change tomorrow. 
That's a huge difference as we come to understand foreknowledge and predestination, even as we come to understand the ordo salutis, that this isn't arbitrarily started somewhere when Christ died and now we have redemption that's going to be applied to us. But in eternity's past, he's already set up his love for his people. All this is for the purpose that you would be conformed to the image of Christ. And the order salutis reveals to us how this is to occur. And this way it leads us to the second point of redemption accomplished and applied. Romans chapter 8 verse 30 tells us this. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We see there this connection. We see the chains that we often talk about. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. There is this guarantee of it happening. But I think one way that's helpful for us to understand the ordo salutis a little bit better is to make a distinction between the history of salvation and the order of salvation as well, too, to help bring some clarification. The history of salvation is the history of, uh, is as John Murray termed it, redemption accomplished, okay? It is often the history of salvation is focused on what Christ as our head has done and what he has been given and what we as members of Christ participate in. Oftentimes, what we focus upon is the one obedience of Christ in its two distinction of, its, of his active and passive obedience. And so we look at Christ living perfectly on this earth. We look at Christ's birth. We look at all those things and, and being perfect on this earth. And then we also look at his death, his burial, his resurrection. Now at the right hand of the Father is oftentimes the history of salvation. It deals with what Christ has done for us. We don't have time today to spend on the connections between the history and the orders of salvation but it's important to understand that God from eternity, who has foreloved you and predestined you to conform to the image of Christ, he has not only loved you and predestined you, but he has also sent his son down. His son has come down and accomplished that redemption for you as well, too. We see the same theme that he not only in eternity planned and chose you, but he even accomplished it for you by sending of his son, by the work of Christ for us. So that it's redemption accomplished or the history of salvation. And so then what is the ordo salutis then? What is the order of salvation? The order of salvation then, as John Murray would term it as well too, it's redemption applied. Redemption accomplished, redemption applied now. You see, it's not as if redemption has been accomplished and so now Christ and so now it's offered to us, and it's now based upon our response that the redemption then would be applied to us. It's not as if Christ died and he fulfilled it and accomplished it. He's like, here you go, Matt. Do you want it or not? And then he'll apply it to us. That is not it. Instead, what we see is that it is that not only has redemption been accomplished, but it is in that that 
God has done everything. It isn't that that Christ has died for us, but also in that the Spirit applies the work of Christ to us, that all of redemption is ours. There is no part of ours that is in this. And so whose hands do you see in all of redemption from eternity to even a redemption accomplished to even redemption applied is that there is only one who is sovereign, only one hand who is in all of this, and that is our God who is sovereign in saving us. He applies it to us as well. It's not ours to apply for ourselves. It's God alone. God's alone. And just to give a short definition from Sinclair Ferguson, he says this, that the ordal salutis denotes the orderly arrangement of the various aspects of salvation and its bestowal on men and women. How are those various aspects applied to us? Just as we see here in Romans, as it gives us a very short form of it, that those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. What is the orderly arrangements of these various aspects of salvation? And so when we speak of these distinctions and how they are related to one another, we need to be reminded that the ordal salutis here is not dealing with a temporal order or that which there is a time sequence involved here, okay? That's very important for us to understand, that it's not dealing with a time sequence that is involved here. And what I mean by that is that there isn't a point in time in the application of redemption where one is called and he sits in that calling for a while and stews in that. And then, and then from that calling, he moves on. And he's regenerated. And we sit in that for a while. And then we turn to repentance and then, and then on and on and on and on. So it's not a sequence of time that we're talking about, but it is a logical order that there is an order that does matter. There's an order that does make sense. And so this order is real. We need to make sure that we understand these distinctions, but also understand that it is not one of time. It is one of logic. How God saves, how God applies redemption to us. And the reason for that is that because these are all logical steps in the same event. So we make distinctions but we in no way imply division between these distinctions. That's why Ferguson says this. That, that, that's why in Ferguson's, Ferguson's uh, definition, he notes the orderly arrangement of the various aspects of salvation in its bestowal on men and women. And I get it. It can get confusing. You say, Matt, this is one event. And various distinctions of the one event. What are you talking about? I know there's glorification in there somewhere, and I am not glorified yet. I still sin. I am not perfect. I've not been brought up to my God. I still sin. My sanctification is still going on. Each day I'm trying to put to death sin. And so you're asking, Matt, what are you talking about one event? Distinctions of one event that has occurred. And I get it. It could be confusing because it's true. What are we to think of that? It's a good question that we have to consider in the midst of this. How come we don't see it in our lives? How come we don't see that one event in our lives? 
We often think of the application of redemption and the good imagery that's used as the golden chain of salvation, where these chains are linked, and you can't have one without the other, and if you take one out, you don't have it at all. This chain is necessary, and it's a great imagery, and it's one that we need to use. But an aspect, a chain analogy that, that we need to be careful of is that we begin to look at each of the chain as though it's complete in itself. And so within each of these chains, there's an isolation of each distinction. And so your election is based upon, uh, and, so, and so you can complete, so there's a sense of isolation of each distinction. Sorry. Of each distinction. And so you can have regeneration come to an end where faith begins. But we understand this, that the times we live in matters, Right? The times we live in matters. We, we are not in. We are in this period of tension that exists. We understand that we are in this already not yet reality that, of this world that we are in. That, that, that the kingdom has been uh, inaugurated, but the kingdom has not been consummated. That the kingdom truly is here, but we still await something future at the same time. And so it's yes and it's no at the same time. And so it's not as clear-cut, and it's not as perfect and beautiful. There's tension that even exists when it deals with salvation here. So there's this already-not-yet aspect to all of salvation as well, too. This is why Ferguson states this, that the chain model for the Spirit's work tends to create the impression that the inaugurated is also fully realized. But there is an eschatological already-not-yet structure to each aspect of soteriology. What this means then is that each aspect of the ordal salutis is dealing with an already not yet structure to them as well too. There's an already not yet to glorification. There's already not yet to justification. There's already not yet to sanctification. There's already not yet to salvation as a whole. This is why Piper says you have been saved, you're being saved, and you will be saved. And they're all true at the same time. And just quickly, I want to say this as we talk about that one event and the distinction of that one event without saying too much on union with Christ. I want to just say this, that it is in our union with Christ that all the benefits of Christ that he accomplishes for us on the cross is ours then and now and already. And yet we are in this already not yet period in which there is that tension of we are trying to figure out what does that all mean. It's hard. I get it. These are things we have to wrestle with. But I need to move on. And, and these fellows, as they come after me, and these men, as they give the word after me, will have to struggle with this reality as well, too. And yet we have to ask another question for us to hopefully help better understand this ordal salutis. We need to ask, does the order matter? I mean, truthfully, Matt, you're saying it's logical. Okay, it's not dealing with time. So does it matter the order that it's in? Does it matter how we place them? I recently had oral surgery on my mouth. And if my oral surgeon told me, hey, Matt, logically, here's what we're going to do. We're going to cut your gums first. Then I'll gas you up. And then, I will, and then I will break up your teeth. 
and then I will give you the shots, and then I will pull each tooth out. You'd run and I'd run. Even logically, it doesn't make sense. And yes, that analogy fails because it has to deal with reality and time as well. It's not a one aspect and one event. But logic matters. God is a God of order, and it matters that how God applies redemption to us. And it makes sense and it has implications for the Christian walk and the Christian life and for the way we live. That's why we can't place glorification before regeneration or glorification at the beginning. It just wouldn't make sense to us. It just wouldn't make sense logically. It just wouldn't make sense to a God who is a God of order. And this doesn't mean that every aspect, I want to say this, that every aspect of the Ordo Salutis carries that same weight. So something such as adoption, people have in the Reformed Church placed it in many different places. Some have placed it as part of justification or as part of sanctification, and some have placed them in between both as well too. So some don't carry as much weight, but there are some that does. So let's just think about this, that, that if you place faith before regeneration, you now have an Arminian ordo salutis. Joel Beacon says that if you place sanctification in front of justification, now you have a Roman Catholic view of the ordo salutis. The order matters because to have the wrong order has implications. It's not arbitrary. Because in the Arminian logic of the ordo salutis, if faith precedes regeneration, that means that a man is able to have faith apart from God. That man is able to have faith without regeneration. And so then they have to include this idea of, at times, a prevenient grace. This grace that is given to man so that man can choose God. And so they have to add something that we don't see in Scripture. The same is true of the Roman Catholics. If you place sanctification before justification then now it's about man receiving some sort of grace to be able to do some good works and to conform himself to a point where God will justify him now. And so your ordo salutis and the order in which you place these in has implications. It has consequences. To get it wrong can cause one to think that I need to live and work in such a way to earn my salvation apart from God. And in both of these implications, what we see in them is that it places man at the forefront of his own salvation. It places man at the forefront of the order. And what we have seen from eternity is that it's God who has foreloved. It's God who has predestined. It's God who has sent his son down to die a death for those whom he has loved and those whom he has predestined for such a life to be conformed to his image and that it is God then also who has applied this redemption to you. Not man at the forefront of this. The ordo salutis matters for your Christian walk. It matters for your Christian life. And that is the beauty of the Reformed Ordo salutis, that it's not man-centered. God saves you. What that means for you, that there are many here, 
Maybe you've had covenant children in this church and other churches have walked away. Maybe you've got friends and family and people you want to know the Lord, but they don't desire, it seems as though, in this moment to come to know the Lord. It speaks to you because of this reality that it is not you who saves them. It is not even they who save themselves, but it is the God of the universe who saves them. And so you as their parents, you as their friends, you as their daughters and sons and grandparents and whatever it may be. You get on your knees every night and you pray to the Lord that they would come, that the Lord's timing is always perfect. And what that means is that off our lips should never come the words, they are a lost cause. But should be, Lord, save them. Lord, save them. Because Salvation is not yours to give, ever. Salvation is not yours to apply. Christ died for them. Spirit applies the work to them. God has chosen them before the foundation of the world. And so to the day of your death, you are sharing the gospel with them. To the day of your death, you are praying for them unceasingly. You are not in charge of this at all. That is great hope for us. That is great hope for us. Because God is the one who saves, and not us. And so as we come to understand a little bit here of the ordo salutis and what it is and what it is not, I just want us to turn to our third and final point of redemption's ultimate purpose. It's true that I said that our purpose is that we will be conformed to the image of the Son. But I want to go back to verse 29 because there's more than not just conformity to the Son in which we see redemption accomplished and redemption applied for saints and those whom he has chosen. But it says here, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. We saw that. One of the purposes is, for, is that we would be conformed to the image of his son. But there is a second, greater purpose in the midst of all this, that your conformity to the son is so that Christ would be the firstborn among many. So this firstborn language does not speak of a firstborn in the sense of physical birth, it's not speaking of firstborn as Christ, the first one to rise and to be resurrected as well too. But it speaks of the preeminence of Christ. And it's the same language that we see in Colossians 1.15 and Hebrews 1.6, that Christ would be preeminent, that redemption accomplished, that redemption applied, that God's love from eternity's past all serves this one purpose, that yes, you be conformed to the image of Christ, but that he would be preeminent among all. This is why Charles Hodge says this, that all of this serves the goal and purpose that Christ would be glorified and exalted. That his glory, as the glory of God in the highest form of its manifestation, is the great goal of creation and redemption. The apostle teaches that this is accomplished by making him the firstborn among many brothers. 
That is, by making him stand as the firstborn, the head and chief among and over that countless multitude who through him are made the sons of God. You guys see, redemption applied, redemption accomplished should never point to us. It's never about me and it never ends with me. You see, our redemption is about Christ. You being transformed into the image of Christ is about Christ. Our redemption serves a purpose that Christ would be glorified, that Christ would be worshipped, that Christ would be praised. This is the ultimate purpose for the ordo salutis and salvation in general, that it points us and leads us to be a people that worship and glorify and honor God. That's why it doesn't make sense that if one is to call themselves a Christian to say, I am unchurched. Because your conformity, you being transformed into the image of Christ, serves the very purpose that you would worship Christ, that you would worship God. And to say that he has chosen me before the foundation of time, that he has predestined me to be conformed to the image of Christ, that he has sent his son down to die for me, and that the Spirit applies the work to me, and I am being transformed into the image of Christ, and yet I do not worship my Lord? Doesn't make sense. That's why it doesn't exist, this idea of the unchurched Christian doesn't make sense to us. The ultimate purpose in all of this is that we would come to worship our God. Why does it make sense? And so as I just close, I want to take us back to that question earlier. And what Burke Parsons says, that oftentimes people think that it's humble to answer, maybe, we'll see. But guys, the truth is this. To answer in such a way is not humility, it's arrogance. It's arrogance. Because it flows oftentimes out of a heart that believes there's still something that I need to do something that I still need to accomplish so that I can be secure and assured of my salvation. We don't rest upon Christ. We don't rest upon our triune God for our salvation. Guys, we take this back from eternity's past. If God has placed his love upon you, predestined you for his purpose, then this means that the application of redemption, he has called you, he has justified you, and he has glorified you. Our God never saw anything in you that was worthy of being saved. You provide nothing. He did not need you, but he in his infinite wisdom chose you. And so when you're asked that question, are you saved? In humility, you can say yes. Yes, because before the foundation time, he already loved me, predestined me. He sent his son down to die for me, not, be, not so that he could love me, but because he does love me. Not only that, by his spirit, he applies what the son has done to me. And it has been applied to me, and I'm his. Yes is the humblest answer we can give to that question.
of the assurance of our salvation. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you that you are a gracious God who loved your children before we could ever offer anything to you. You chose us before the foundation of the world. You set us apart for your love and your care. Lord, and you applied that to us. You sent your son down to die for us, O oh Lord. And Lord, we are to come to you evermore in worship, evermore in praise of who you are, Lord. May our lives be lived in such a way, Lord, that when we, one is asked, how can you be sure? How do you know you're saved? We tell them because of you, not us. May we boast in you and you alone. Amen.